on December the 17th, 1903, two men made history. Orville and Wilbur Wright successfully flew the first aircraft, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It was their fifth attempt. They traveled some 12 seconds. Once they safely landed, they immediately went to send a telegram to their sister Catherine. The message was a two-sentence telegram. We've flown for 12 seconds, period. We'll be home for Christmas, period. When Catherine received the message, she immediately went to the local newspaper said to the editor all the things that her brothers had done. She spoke about their flying machine and how they had successfully flown some 12 seconds. And oh, by the way, they'll be home for Christmas. Two days later, there was an article in the newspaper about the Wright brothers. It was buried on the sixth page. The title of the article jumped off the script. It simply read, Wright Brothers, Home for Christmas. <laughs> Seems that the editor heard the message, but he missed its meaning entirely. You know, when I think about that, I think that maybe that's what's happened to us at Christmas. We've heard the message, but sometimes we miss the meaning altogether. So that in our culture, the true meaning of Christmas is omitted, it is neglected, it is buried away on the sixth page of our lives. So this morning, I want us to embark on a three-part sermon series. And we're going to examine the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. So this morning, I want to talk to you about putting Christ in Christmas Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 1, let's begin at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. I 
Matthew chapter 1 is a chapter that is stuffed with names. The first 17 verses give us a host of names, many of which we can barely pronounce, and we usually just skip right over them and get to the good part of the part that I just read for you beginning in verse 18. Matthew gives us 42 generations of individuals. The reason he does this is because he wants to communicate to his primarily Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. His line and lineage goes back to King David, through King David, even to Father Abraham. So we're told in verse 17 of our chapter 1 that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 more generations from the exile to the Christ, 42 in all. If you were to count the number of names in Matthew chapter 1, you come to nearly 50 names that are listed there for us. Names are important aren't they? Many of us uh, think a long while before we name our son or our daughter. We put a lot of thought into it because names are important. This morning, I want to submit to you three names, three names that I think the author gives to Jesus. These three names speak about the prominence, purpose, and promise of Jesus. They're right there in our text. The first word that he gives to us is the word Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. The word Christ is a very important title. It's a very important name. It's the name that communicates the prominence of Jesus. Jesus is not just any Jesus. He's not just any person named Jesus. He is Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. I've told you before and I'll tell you many times again that the greatest theological statement you can ever make is a two-word phrase, Jesus Christ. You're saying a mouthful when you say that two-word statement. In our culture, we speak the name Christ as if it's his last name, as if somehow he was born to Joseph and Mary Christ, that if you want to look him up, then all you have to do is find him listed in the seas. You've got Caldwell and uh, Kennant and Casey and Christ and Cleveland and Cox and Crawford. And you look and it's right there in the order. But Christ is not the last name of our Lord. It is the name that communicates his title, his essence, his prominence. In the New Testament, the word is Christos. It's Christ. In the Old Testament, it is a transliteration from which we get the English word Messiah. Messiah and Christ, they are synonymous throughout the scripture. And all uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks about the long-awaited, soul-sovereign Savior of the universe, that he will come in a miraculous way, in a mighty way, in a majestic way. He is Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Lord. It's a term that technically means the anointed one. Anointed by God to do God's mission. Jesus is Christ. To say that he's Christ is to say that he is prominent. He is preeminent. He is powerful. There is no one like him. He cannot be duplicated. He cannot be replaced. He is unique. He's in a class all by himself. To say that he is Christ is to say that he is more obedient than Noah. And Noah was pretty obedient because Noah built a big boat just because Jesus told him to. He's more faithful than Abraham. 
And Abraham was pretty faithful unto the Lord, for he left Ur of the Chaldeans and went to a city he had never seen before. He even took his one only son, Isaac, went on top Mount Moriah, and there he was set to execute his beloved son. Jesus is even more gracious than the man named Joseph. For Joseph, as you know, for we've studied the last several weeks, he was uh, beat to a pulp, thrown into a pit, and sold by his jealous brothers into slavery. And yet, he forgave them. And Jesus is even more gracious than that. Jesus is more powerful than Elijah. Elijah called down fire from heaven, and it consumed the altar, licked up the water. Jesus is more daring than Daniel. And Daniel courageously entered the lion's den. Jesus is more loving and compassionate than even Hosea. And Hosea stood by his adulterous wife, even though she worked in the red light district. Jesus is more prominent than anyone else that we read about in the scripture, it seems that as you look at the landscape of the scripture, it is Jesus who rises to the top. So that it's the, it's the apostle named John who says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him. Without him, there was not anything made that has been made. He is the life and the light of men, and the light, uh, the darkness cannot understand it nor comprehend it. It is the Apostle Paul who says of this Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one thing that holds everything together. He is the firstborn of all creation. It is the Apostle Peter when he writes his sacred text that says that Jesus is our living hope and our inheritance. An inheritance that will never spoil or fade. This is Jesus. Jesus who? Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. He is undeniable. He is irreplaceable. He is irrefutable. He is unmistakable. He is the Christ. So that you and I cannot think about him too much. We can't make too much of Jesus. We can't worship him too much. We can't serve him too much. We can't sing to him too much. We can't love him too much. We cannot make too much of him because even if we had the capacity to think about Jesus all the time, that still would not be enough time for us to think about Jesus because he is prominent. So we're Jesus people. Don't ever diminish that. Don't ever demote that. Don't, don't ever put that down. Don't ever get embarrassed by that. Don't ever get embarrassed by who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. You are a Jesus person. If you're in Christ, then you're declaring there is much to be made of Jesus and I can't make too much of him. So whether I'm in church or out of church, at the marketplace or at the business place, wherever I am, at the grocery store or the gas station, it really doesn't matter because my job is to make much of the one of whom much is made about, the one named Jesus. He is the Christ. So God help us if we ever impose a gag order upon ourselves, where somehow we get mute about the Messiah, somehow we get embarrassed about the Eternal One, somehow we fail 
to make much of him. Instead, we spin our wheels making much money, making much significance, making much, much personal prominence. Oh, my friends, you can't make too much of the Lord. In fact, um, if there's ever a moment in your life when you're not making much of Jesus, you need to redeem the time. If there's ever a moment when you're thinking about something that's not godly, you need to push the pause button and start speaking about, thinking about God just for a second because there's never a bad time to think about the Lord, never a bad time to pray unto him, never a bad time to get your worship on, never a bad time to sing songs of praise unto him. There's never a bad time. Why? Because he is the subject matter. And because he is prominent, then there's always a good time to think about him. Jesus is the Christ. And you and I, you go ahead and give him applause. That's fine too. Because you and I cannot make too much of him. Matthew gets to the end of 42 generations and he speaks about Jesus the Christ. This word Christ is the greatest title. It's the greatest name that he mentions in nearly 50 names of Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. The first word is Christ. It reveals his prominence. Second word I'll give to you is Savior. It reveals his purpose. Mary and Joseph were a delightful couple. They were engaged to each other. Joseph was probably a little bit older than Mary. Mary was probably in her teenage years. They were engaged to each other. And everybody around town thought, oh, this is precious. This is a match made in heaven. You got Joseph. He's a fine, upstanding individual. You got Mary. She's cute as a button. And she loves God. And it's obvious in the way she lives her life. Oh, this is wonderful. They're coming together. They're going to be engaged. They're going to be married. This is beautiful. But before the wedding night, it became obvious that Mary was pregnant. This was a problem on multiple levels. Uh, first and foremost, the greatest problem was that Joseph knew he wasn't the daddy's, the baby, or the daddy of the baby. He knew that was not his. This was very problematic. In those days, an engagement was uh, almost legal. In fact, in order to break an engagement, it required a divorce to dissolve the matter. So they were engaged and they were legally bound to each other. Now, Mary was insistent saying that she had not fooled around with anybody. She, she had not been immoral. Uh, what was conceived inside of her was a supernatural, miraculous event for the Holy Spirit had said unto her that what was about to take place, that he had come and overshadowed her, that what was conceived inside of her was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph said, yes, I'm a godly man, but that's a far-fetched story. I mean, I mean that, that's pretty hard for me to understand. It, the Bible describes Joseph as righteous and reasonable. To say that he's righteous is to say that he's moral, he's noble, he's upstanding. Uh, he uh, knows the law. He knows how to be in right standing with the law. He's a religious man, well-respected in the community. To say that he's reasonable is to say that he knows it takes two to tango. And he knows he has not been with Mary. Obviously, scandalous story. Obviously, she has cheated on him. He has a choice to make. He can 
disgrace her publicly. Uh, He can uh, cause attention to this. He can uh, try to retrieve his name. He can uh, try to retrieve his own reputation. He can uh, thoroughly uh, shame her and her family. He can do it in a very public uh, type of way. But Joseph is kind. He's gracious, in fact. He sets his mind to this. He will divorce her privately. Even though some of the elders of the town had advised him, do it publicly. Even though some other friends had said, take her to court. After all, you've got to retrieve your name, your reputation, the other people that are talking about you as well as her. You've got to make a spectacle out of this for she has run your name in the mud. Joseph said, no, no, I I will do this privately. I'll do this out of court. I'll do it discreetly. I'll do it as to not bring any more shame to her or to her family. I'll just divorce her privately. I think he would have done it, actually, if it hadn't been for the dream that night. Chapter 1, verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. For what is conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. What confirmation. An angel from heaven came to communicate to Joseph in a dream, saying, what Mary has been telling you is the truth. She has not been fooling around. What is inside of her is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this is all by God's cosmic divine plan. She will give birth to a bouncing baby boy, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he's Savior. He will save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up. And he believed the angel of the dream. This is the first of three angels who visit Joseph in a dream. The first one's here in chapter 1, verse 20. The second one's going to come in chapter 2, verse 13. The third's going to come in chapter 2, verse 19. All three times an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, giving him some instruction or direction about the arrival or the safety of the Christ child. And every time... Joseph believes the angel. Every time he regards that angel as a messenger from heaven, uh, uh, one who uh, came uh, from the court of God, and the instruction that the angel gives, Joseph obeys. You and I have dreams all the time, don't we? We don't put much stock in a lot of those dreams, do we? I hope not, right? I mean, we have some dreams and we think to ourselves, boy, where did that come from? What did I eat last night? (laughs) What caused that dream? What caused me to think about that? How did I have that? And it was a vivid dream. It was a a picturesque dream. What caused that? And sometimes we just chalk it up as a dream and we go on our own fancy, merryful way. But aren't you glad Joseph didn't do that? Joseph believed his engaged, soon-to-be wife. She's telling me the truth. So he did what the angel instructed, took her home as his, as his wife. Uh, what was conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She would give birth to a son, and he would give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. 
all throughout Christendom, we have affirmed the virgin birth. It is a doctrine that we hold to dearly. And as followers of Christ, we ought not diminish it in any way. It is an important doctrine. It is an important belief. For we affirm the virgin birth. We believe that Jesus was born in very natural ways, in very unnatural ways, to to a woman who was a virgin, never been with a man before. The real miracle is, is not necessarily the virgin birth. The real miracle is the virgin conception. <laughs> that, a, that a virgin conceived. I mean, that boo, blows our minds, right? I mean, that does not make a lot of sense. A virgin conceives? Yes, she conceived. And yes, nine months later, she gave birth in very natural ways. She gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. And this virgin conception that leads to a virgin birth is something that we adamantly defend. Because if it weren't true, then the deity of Jesus would be called into question. If it were not true, then Jesus would just be a mere man, born like every other individual from a man and a woman. If it were not true, if the virgin birth were not true, if it did not happen in supernatural ways, if the Holy Spirit did not overshadow Mary and conceive inside of her the very Son of God, if it did not happen in that way, if it happened in a very natural way and Jesus came into existence, then he would be just like any other mere mortal man. If the virgin birth were not true, the holy book called the Bible would not be reliable. Because the Bible affirms, makes uh, no uh, mixed words about it. It's very clear. It's not confusing. It's not chaotic. It's, it, it doesn't stumble over. I mean, the Bible affirms that Jesus came through a virgin. It's very clear on that. There's no question. There's no denying it. That's clearly, that's what it states. It states it here in Matthew. It states it in Luke's gospel. Uh, the, the implication, the, the prediction is given in the Old Testament, a place like Isaiah. All throughout Old Testament and New Testament, it says that when Messiah comes, when Christ arrives, he will come in supernatural ways. He will come and a virgin will give birth. So if it's not true, then the Bible's not reliable. If it's not true, then how can we believe any miracle that's within the sacred scripture? If we don't believe the virgin birth, then how can we believe any other miracle that Jesus performed and the quintessential miracle that Jesus performed, the greatest uh, uh, miracle that he performed occurred after his death and burial when he was raised from the dead on the third day. If his arrival through the virgin birth is not real, then how do we know that the tomb really isn't empty? If you can't believe one miracle, why in the world would you believe another miracle? But I came this morning to tell you that Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is not only a good man, he is the God man. 
The Bible affirms that Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. He has to be the God-man. The Christ child has to be the God-man. For only the God-man can be a suitable substitute for your sins and for mine. He has to be fully human so that he can identify and be your substitute. Yet he has to be fully God. For only God can die for the sins of lost humanity and be raised on the third day. If a mere man dies, then his blood doesn't cover anybody else's sins. But if the God man dies, then his blood, the perfect lamb of God, covers over the sins of the multitude of the world. Your sin, both past, present, and future. Oh, my friends, this morning, I got to tell you, I affirm the virgin birth because in the arrival of Jesus is the Christ child, and that Christ child is, always has been, always will be the God man. And I need to tell you that this Bible is reliable. It is authentic. It is real. God is not the author of confusion. God cannot lie. The liar that's described in sacred text is the one named Satan, the adversary. He is the father of lies. But God is the father of truth. So this is his word, his book. Just because it's in here doesn't make it true. It's true, and that's why it's in here. Because of its presence here, it just reveals the accurate record. It tells you exactly what happened and how it happened, and this book is reliable. I don't have to make it reliable. I don't have to make it relevant. It automatically is relevant. It automatically is reliable. All I do Sunday in and Sunday out is I just open it up and expose it. I just tell you a little bit of what's in there and you look, you see, and you believe. You say, yes, this is the very word of God and there is no mixture of error within. It is God's word. You can trust it. And we affirm the virgin birth because according to the reliable scripture, this miracle is believable and so is every other miracle. It too is believable. From that infamous Friday when Jesus, the God-man, was crucified and buried, on the third day, he got up. They're still looking for his bones, but they won't find them because he got up. Jesus got up. He was bodily, physically, literally raised from the dead. This is the crux of Christianity. Everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of resurrection. And you and I have staked our very lives on this. This is not just a fable. It's fact. This is not just a hoax. It's holy. This is a true story that Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and for mine, was crucified dead and buried and on the third day he got up from the dead so you and I adamantly affirm the virgin birth the virgin conception it was Martin Luther as he thought about the incarnation who said this is God willingly sinking himself down into our flesh what a beautiful picture 
of incarnation. God willingly, voluntarily, sinking himself down into our flesh. But why? What's the purpose? Why did God step out of heaven and step into earth in a Bethlehem barn some 2,000 years ago? Why did God do that? Well, the angel tells Joseph the answer. You're to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come to save you? To save you from what? I guess we can answer that in various ways. Let me do it rather quickly. Jesus came to save us from our own self-destruction. Jesus came to save us from the rightful wrath of God that should be poured out and meted out against you and against me. Jesus came to save us from eternal death. Jesus came to save us from the effects of your sin and my sin. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came to save us, to save us from self-destruction, to save us from God's wrath, to save us from death, to save us from our sin. If God did not want to save us, then he would just have simply let us go on about our way because we are already condemned. Jesus did not come to condemn us any further. We can't be condemned any further. We're already condemned because of our disobedience. If God did not want to save us, then he just would have kept Jesus in heaven and said, don't go. Because Jesus came, it gives evidence to the love of God. Love, God's love says you are worth saving. Not because you're cute, not because you're valuable, not because uh, you can give something unto the Lord. You're worth saving because God says you're worth saving. It's a testimony to God's goodness and his love and his mercy, which is fresh each new morning. And Jesus came to save us from our sins. The word Jesus actually is tied to the Old Testament name of Joshua. Both Joshua and Jesus mean the same thing. It means the Lord saves. So when the angel says to Joseph, you're going to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, really the angel's being redundant. I mean, Jesus means the Lord saves. He will save his people from their sins. Duh, hello, exactly. That's what the name means. Jesus came to fulfill what his name means. He came because Yahweh saves. He came because the Lord saves. He came to accomplish for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot save yourself. Only God can do that. This is the testimony of all the Bible. This is what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Peter says to the Sanhedrin. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. It is Jesus. Jesus is the subject matter of all of Scripture. He is the action verb of all of Scripture. He is the complement of all of Scripture. In other words, everything in the Bible is about Jesus and his plan, and he is the man of salvation. He came to seek and to save you because of God's infinite love for you. So you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And his salvation is eternal. 
His salvation is for good. His salvation is forever. What he gives you in salvation, you cannot lose. You've got it both now and forevermore. So you walk in that victory. You walk in that freedom. You walk in that reality that if Jesus has set you free, you are free indeed. I'll give you a third word. The third word is Emmanuel. It reveals the promise of Jesus. Joseph woke up and he was obedient. He took Mary as his wife. We do not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary because of what the scripture says. The scripture says that once Jesus was born, that Mary and Joseph had a very normal, natural husband-wife relationship. There were other sons and daughters uh, uh, that were fathered by Joseph and Mary. The scripture bears that out. Joseph took Mary home to be his wife. And I want you to notice that he took her home immediately. What he does is he reduces the lag time. You know what lag time is? Lag time is the time between uh, what you know you ought to do and then actually doing it. The life of the disciple is learning the art of reducing the lag time. What God has told you to do, uh, then you need to immediately do it. What's our problem? Sometimes our lag time is lengthy. It's minutes. It's moments. It's hours. It's days. It's weeks. It's it's months, it's, it's years, it's, it's decades. Some of us may be seated here this morning and God has told you clearly to do something, but you've got a lengthy lag time between knowing what you ought to do and actually doing it. Some people are here listening to my voice and the Lord has been pursuing you for years. He's the hound of heaven. He's been coming after you. He's been saying, hey, I know who you are and I know where you are and I love you and I want to save you. Please give your heart unto me and you have had lag time, lag time, lag time. Some people may be here and the Lord is calling you to join this church. You need to reduce the lag time. Do it today. There's some people here, and the Lord is telling you, teenager, you need to break that relationship with that boyfriend or girlfriend because that relationship is not leading you to the Lord, but it's leading you away from the Lord. And you have lag time today. Cut the lag time and reduce it and just do what God is calling you to do. Some of you have a particular sin that so easily entangles you. And, and today is the day to reduce the lag time. You give it unto the Lord. And you say, Lord, I know what I ought to do. And today I need to be obedient unto you. Stop having lag time in your life for the life of the disciple is the art of reducing lag time between what you know that you ought to do and actually doing it. Joseph gives us a great picture of this. Immediately, he took Mary home to be his wife. Matthew says that this is all in fulfillment what the prophet Isaiah says, for a virgin will give birth to a son, you shall give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is pretty important to Matthew. In fact, he uh, uses this term, this idea as bookends in his gospel. We find it here in Matthew chapter 1. We also find it in Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. As you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. For surely I am with you always. That's Emmanuel. For surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew says at the beginning and at the end, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, because Jesus has come, we are never alone. Listen, you may be by yourself 
from time to time. But you're never alone. If you are in Christ, you are never alone because God is with you. We're not just talking about any Joe Schmo. We're not just talking about any potential friend. We're talking about the God of the universe who is with us. Whoa, I thought that would get more than that. But anyway, I need to press on. I, I got Because this is God we're talking about. Emmanuel, God with us. This chapter of 50 names gives us at least three names of Jesus. He is Christ. He is Savior. He's Emmanuel. He's Christ. Reveals his prominence. He's Savior. That reveals his purpose. He's Emmanuel. That reveals his promise. The year was 1247. In London, England, a house was built. And the house was built by the Sisters and brethren of the order of the Star of Bethlehem. It was built to house people. It was, a, it was built to be a safe house for those on the street and those destitute. But over the years, uh, it pretty much just devolved into an insane asylum. By the year 1557, it's nothing more. It was just... Uh, a hospital, it was just an insane asylum where people with, who were mentally ill would come, be left, and people there would try to take care of them. It devolved even further in the year 1814. For a whopping one penny, you could go make fun of, poke, prod, look at, laugh at any of the patients they called inmates who were pretty much locked up in cells and people could come for a penny for a Friday night of cheap entertainment. You were told to bring your own stick, bring your own uh, uh, poker that you could come and you could prod them and you could poke the people just like they were caged animals and just see what they would do and see how they would respond and see what they would say and shriek for a whopping penny. In 1814, 96,000 people went through that home. 96,000 people. What's remarkable is not only did the structure deteriorate, not only did the care and the nobility of the institution deteriorate, but so did its name. It started out as the Order of the Star of Bethlehem. Then it just got reduced to the Star of Bethlehem. Then it just got reduced to Bethlehem. And then it just got reduced to bedlam. What started out with such nobility simply became bedlam. Bethlehem is a great word. Bethlehem means house of bread. It simply became bedlam, a place of chaos. I hear that story and I wonder, is that your Christmas experience? It starts out so noble. It starts out so grand and glorious. Oh, we're going to talk about Bethlehem. We're going to talk about what happened. For in God's perspective, uh, from the cradle goes the cross. As you look into the Bethlehem bassinet, you see the Christ child who's the God-man. This one whose back was made for the wood of the cradle is the one whose back is made for the wood of the cross. And all we think about that. And, but then, over time, life happens. Busyness happens. Everything becomes hectic. And Bethlehem becomes Bedlam. 
just chaos, just noise. Until we get to the point where we pray, when is this going to be over? When is it going to be December the 27th? I can't wait for all this to be done. You know what that is? Bedlam. You know how you get back from Bedlam to Bethlehem? You remember the Christ of Christmas. He's Christ. He's prominent. He's Savior. That's his purpose. That's why he came, to save you from yourself. He's Emmanuel. That's his promise. He is God with us, both now and forevermore. And that, my friends, that's what Christmas is all about. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, wherever there is bedlam in our midst, will you restore Bethlehem? If there's somebody here who needs to reduce lag time, if there's somebody here who needs to accept you by faith, if there's somebody here who needs to come and pray, make a hard decision, Lord Jesus, I pray they'll make it today. In Jesus' name, amen.